This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Estrella Santiago Perez, the reason why thousands of families right now are living in houses that have no roof, that maybe have no windows, that are completely damaged, because they have no access to the funds that are allocated for that same purposes. Estrella is the Environmental Affairs Manager of the Corporación del Proyecto Enlace del Caño Martín Peña. Enlace is a public corporation created under the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico's Act 489, and is tasked by the coordination and implementation of public policies regarding the rehabilitation of the Caño Martín Peña CMP Tidal Channel, a 3.5-mile-long natural tide channel that is part of the San Juan Bay Estuary. The project is an initiative that links the public, private, and community sector to rehabilitate and revitalize the community surrounding the tidal channel in order to improve their quality of life recover natural resources, and overcome poverty. Estrella holds a bachelor's degree in biology from the University of Puerto Rico and a Juris Doctor from the School of Law of the University of Puerto Rico. She participated as a speaker at the 2016 UIC School of Public Health Dean's Forum on Climate Change in the Caribbean, the 2018 NCSE National Conference and Global Forum on Science Policy and the Environment, and Bioneers 2018. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Adana, and thank you for giving us a forum to speak about issues affecting low-income communities in Puerto Rico. And as you mentioned, these topics are not usually discussed at a national level in the U.S., so any forum that we can expose what are the challenges, but also the opportunities, and what are the communities doing here in Puerto Rico is very important for us. So I appreciate giving us this space and I am very excited to talk to be a bit more about what we do here and also share uh, some experiences and ideas with you and so that everybody that's listening to us also learns more about what we do. Mm, thank you. And yeah, like you were saying, these conversations aren't being told to especially through the mainstream media in the US. And these are stories that we all need to understand globally so that we can have a a better grasp of the situations we're in and how to support 
healthy, resilient communities moving forward. And I'm thinking about in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico lost about 80% of its crop value. Nearly the entire population lost access to power. Half of the island didn't have running water and hospitals were shut down. In doing research for this episode, I've come across stories of FEMA requiring geologists to inspect properties before handing out aid. Yet there were, or perhaps still are, only two geologists on the island doing this work, or stories of government control, controlled water and power authorities who continued to build residents while services weren't functioning. So mainstream media, you know, certainly loves to obsess over stories of chaos and breakdown, which leaves examples of resilience and resurgence untold. So I wonder what the story from the ground is. Did Hurricane Maria reveal the territory's vulnerabilities? Or how have you seen Puerto Rico respond to these shortcomings, especially given that on October 30th, an attorney for Puerto Rico's government admitted in a San Juan courtroom that there is no official hurricane response plan for the island? So what you explained beautifully is what's happening in our communities. I can provide some examples in our communities of what was the situation like on the ground after the hurricane and what the situation is right now. So first of all, before I, I speak about the situation, I want to give a bit of background information on our communities. So Enlace works in eight communities, and these are communities that are located in the margins of a tidal channel, which is the Caña Martin Peña. These are communities that are very low income. Over half of our residents live below the poverty level. 42% of the residents are living with an annual income of average $10,000. So prior to the hurricane, we already faced a lot of economic hardships. In addition to these economic hardships, our communities are facing critical public health and environmental issues because the tidal channel is blocked and almost three of our communities lack a proper sanitary system. So when it rains, the stormwater system carries combined stormwater and uh, raw discharges into the Caño Martin Peña. So any rain event in our communities can result in a flood event without having a storm or a hurricane in place. So even prior to Maria, we already had a lot of flooding in our communities because of the lack of uh, proper infrastructure and because of the conditions of the Caño Martin Peña. So then September came, and obviously Hurricane Maria exacerbated the conditions in our communities. Over 75 houses in our district were completely destroyed by the hurricane. Over 1,200 families lost their roof, either partially or totally, and over 70% of our communities got completely flooded in some areas for over four days. So obviously the damage was extensive, and it was similar to other communities in Puerto Rico. But first responders were the neighbors and the leadership. We worked very hard to coordinate with FEMA the first tarps to be distributed in the communities. And we just call FEMA, pick them up, and then also acquire other donations from private entities and distributed them into the communities the week after the hurricane. So goods were distributed, food, and a lot of things had to be done with their own communities and coordination of the community leadership because as you mentioned, there was a bit of miscommunication between the government you know, and, and, you know, the, the extensive damage was just way too much for them to manage and to coordinate in time. So a lot of the, the immediate aid had to be provided by their own communities and secured to a lot of allies and collaborators that just reached out to us from Puerto Rico and from outside of Puerto Rico to 
but obviously the conditions were very dire. And in addition to that, people had no electricity for over five months in our communities. There was access issues uh, during those first days of the hurricane. We had to remove vegetation from the streets because it posed a significant safety and health hazard to our residents. And now we have a lot of families still with roofs made of tarps or blue roofs, which is the permanent temporary roofing provided by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So that happened after the hurricane. And one year after the hurricane, we've done a lot of things to at least transition from immediate relief into a more medium and long-term recovery. But there's still a lot to do. So the Caño Martin Peña, a year after the hurricane, is even worse conditions. So this channel that used to be up to 400 feet wide in the 30s, prior to the hurricane, lost its, its width and its depth due to the informal sediment process. So prior to Hurricane Maria, the canyon from over 400 feet wide uh, used to be up to three feet wide. So obviously, severely blocked by debris, trash, and sediment. After the hurricane, the condition worsened because of the loss of vegetation in the channel and also sedimentation from other areas, trash, etc. And our communities, obviously, one year after the hurricane, we still have a lot of houses without a permanent roof. So one of the things that we had to do, because we saw that a lot of the families applied for assistance and got denied due to various issues that we can discuss after on the call, we had to just develop an initiative called From Tarps to Roofs. And through this initiative, which is 100% donation-based, the G8 which is the group of the eight communities surrounding the Caño Martin Peña, and it's a nonprofit organization that encompasses over 12 community-based organizations in our communities. They, through donations, implemented this project to identify families in critical conditions without a roof and uh, construct a proper permanent using traditional materials. With this initiative, we've already completed 72 um, roofs, and it's on a rolling basis. As long as we keep, uh, the GIA keeps continuing to receive donations, then they're going to keep continuing building roofs. But definitely the conditions here have been worsened by the hurricane. And what we're trying to do is at least work towards a long-term recovery, uh, just an equitable recovery in our communities through all of these funds that have been assigned for the Puerto Rico as part of the disaster recovery funding opportunities. Hmm. Wow. It's so complex, and I'm really appreciative that you're breaking it down for us. And I was reading that over 20,000 residents live around the Caño Martín Peña and have long lived amongst waste and debris and sediment. And in fact, over 3,000 structures in Puerto Rico discharge raw sewage into the channel. And this surplus of sediment and water clogs the channel, leaving the water stagnant. And because of this, residents who live around the channel have higher rates of gastrointestinal diseases and children frequently develop skin and conditions and asthma. So I'm wondering if you could share with us what residents of the G8 have historically dealt with and how have such conditions magnified under storms like Maria? So as you was mentioning, these communities have a lot of public health stressors that are directly related to the conditions in which they are living. So you mentioned very well, we have a lot of communities here, almost half of our communities out of the eight communities, lack a proper sanitary system. And the stormwater system is obsolete because it's carrying all these combined waters. So obviously there's a lot of issues affecting them. But you also mentioned something important. This is These are communities that were established in the 30s through an informal settlement process. So 
just to go a little bit back. In the 30s, Puerto Rico suffered two hurricanes. And in addition to that, it was passing through an economic depression. Now it sounds very similar to what we have, what is happening right now. In that time, most of the economy in Puerto Rico was agricultural economy, a farming economy, but a lot of the land were from the U.S. mainland. So when the hurricanes hit and the economy dropped, a lot of these landowners from the states, they went back, left a lot of families that were the ones working the land without jobs opportunities in the rural areas of Puerto Rico. So there was a migration process from the rural areas of Puerto Rico all the way into the city. Once these families came to the city looking for better job opportunities and a better quality of life, they didn't find accessible housing. So they started filling the wetland and filling the Caña Martin Peña. As you may imagine, since a lot of these houses were constructed by their own families, well, a lot of them lack connection to the sanitary system. So, and that informal settlement process also caused the Caña to, to lose its width and its depth and to cut, and has resulted in the, in the different conditions that you, you just explained and mentioned. So what the communities are doing well, the first thing that the communities worked on was organizing themselves in the 90s. So all of the communities here have a community board comprised of community president and vice president. And all of those community boards, and including other uh, community-based organizations, uh, forms what is known as the G8. And the G8 and the leadership created legislation for the implementations of the projects needed to address all of these issues that they are facing. And that's why in 2004, through the Puerto Rico Latin, 24 or 489 of, of September 2004, and LSA is created as a public corporation in charge of implementing all the projects needed to revitalize the communities, including dredging and channelization of the channel, but also infrastructure projects, housing and social and economic development programs. And all of these projects were actually incorporated in the development plan that was designed and develop with the communities, doing over 700 community activities that were performing the communities in order to just design this comprehensive development plan. So our responsibility is to implement all the projects included in this, in this plan. But in addition to that, the same law that creates Enlace also creates a community land trust. Why is it so important and why is it so relevant, the land trust, specifically now that we're talking about disaster recovery? Well, the land trust is the mechanism by which we prevent gentrification of the area. And gentrification may occur as an unintended consequence or intended consequence of all of the projects needed to revitalize the area. So through the land trust, what we're doing is that we are providing opportunities for any family that needs to be relocated in our communities because they're living in the footprint of any of the projects that are contained in the comprehensive development plan. We're providing to them opportunities to relocate within their own communities, respecting community cohesion and respecting the historical permanence of this. And this is critical for us because it will be very easy to make all of these projects that are needed to revitalize the communities, displacing them, just saying to them, you have to move out because we're going to dredge this channel. You have to move out because we're going to fix the infrastructure. And then you move all, you displace all these families, and after you fix the problem, what usually happens is that you have other residents coming in with a higher income profile, and the residents that were historically living there are not the ones benefiting from that result. That's why it was so critical for us to create a land trust. And it also took a lot of community engagement, discuss different ideas, like having a cooperative, but they just decided on having a land trust. And having a land trust 
was also important because a lot of the families in our district were living in lands that were owned by different public agencies. So it would be very easy if they used to be owned by the, by the government agencies for the government to say you have to move because you're living in lands owned by the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. So what happens with the land trust is that all of those lands that were owned by the public agencies were transferred to the land trust. So we're giving protections to families that otherwise would have protection in their land. So that's why it's also important talking about the land trust. So the committees created all of these institutions in order to fix their problems and address all of the issues. So one of the main components, obviously, is opening the channel. We need to open the channel because we need to restore that tidal connection and we have to alleviate the flood risk faced by our communities. That component of the project, we've worked for years with the core engineers because it's under their jurisdiction. It was a project that was actually authorized by Congress in 2007, but that authorization was subject to the or conditioned to the approval of a facility report that enlast say prepared and submitted to the core engineers for, for approval. And right now we're in the design stage of this project. But a project can be in the design phase for years or decades even. What we want to do is try to cure funding in this critical moment, either disaster recovery fundings or the traditional funding, to move forward this project from design to construction and begin finally the dredging the channel. But in addition to dredging the channel, there's also that the other infrastructure and housing components that we work on. And we've already relocated over 200 families that were living in the margins of the channel. Um, most of these families have decided to stay in their communities within lands of the land trust, which is good for us. And we've already done a lot of infrastructure. Half of the infrastructure projects needed for this project have been completed, but we have five more that are very, very critical and that would connect all of the families are currently not connected to sanitary system into a sanitary system and will provide proper stormwater system. So there's things that has been done, but there's things that needs to be done. And that's only in the technical aspect. But then because there are also social programs that have been implemented along with the GA to address other social issues. So we have an adult literacy program. We have uh, environmental awareness programs in the elementary and high school on, the, on our communities. We also have community gardens. We also have a community-based enterprise incubator, and we have a Youth Leaders in Action, which is a nonprofit comprised of uh, young people who are very active and vocal, and they're also, you know, fighting for their rights and for the project. So there's also a lot of others, uh, over 30 other social programs and projects that are part of the Enlace project and that were created with the communities as a mechanism to address all the issues that they're facing. Hey for the Wild community, Ayana here. As appreciative as we are of the sponsorships we receive throughout the year, we can't continue to produce the podcast on their generosity alone. I know I've mentioned this before, but I just want to take a moment to express how much time, effort, and care goes into the preparation and production of our episodes. From research, writing, production, outreach, and social media content, with the format that we work in and other forms of emerging digital media in general, it's hard to demonstrate just how much work goes into the product that listeners have come to expect. 
Over the years, For the Wild has grown into a small, dedicated, and loving team of individuals who are committed to the work that we do. We all consider ourselves lucky to be able to do this work amongst each other and create unique offerings each week. However, For the Wild also wants to make sure that we're able to pay a living wage and support individuals in living a dignified life. As it stands right now, the funds we raise through our Patreon only cover the cost of one out of the four to five episodes we produce a month. If you want to see us continue, or perhaps are especially moved by the episode you are listening to today, please become a monthly sustaining member through our Patreon or consider making a one-time donation directly to us through our website. You can do so at patreon.com slash for the wild or by visiting our website at forthewild.world slash donate. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Now let's get back to the interview. You know, I have a, a question about the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States because, you know, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, although they can't vote in presidential elections and they only send one non-voting representative to Washington. So while America's colonial power has long withheld the island's sovereignty, Puerto Rico is virtually absent from the American imagination. With a recent poll stating that only 54% of Americans are even aware that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. So I'm wondering if you could speak to how U.S. imperialism has long exploited Puerto Rico's land and people. And then maybe a second part to that question is I imagine that there, you know, of course must be a spectrum of varying opinions, but I would be interested to hear some of the common feelings Puerto Ricans harbor towards the U.S. Do people on the island identify as Americans and is there any desire to become a state or is there a greater consensus towards wanting complete sovereignty? Well, that's a very good question and a very complex one. From the first point, definitely the relationship between Puerto Rico and, and the U.S. and the lack of voting representation hurts us in a sense that obviously we have to work harder <laughs> to get the attention of, you know, uh, federal government or other uh, entities or institutions in the United States, which in some part, after the hurricane, we've gotten more attention, but still, you know, it's it's a very difficult situation when you have to almost identify what mechanisms can work recognizing that you have no voting power. So it, it definitely affects everything from allocation of funds to priorities and type of assistance received. So it's something that basically impermeates through every aspect of the Puerto Rican life. And it makes it harder for us to, to be able to go to the states and, and justify the needs of all the communities in Puerto Rico. When you have 4 million people living here, but that doesn't translate into voting. And unfortunately, for a lot of things, voting is like a currency. So it's definitely hurting us. And knowing that we're not in the, in the loophole of not only the politicians, but also the people in the U.S., it's also hurting because there's so many issues that happen in the island and issues that were prior to Hurricane Maria, like the economic crisis in Puerto Rico, but also issues that have arisen from the hurricane after the Hurricane Maria. And not necessarily that's in the, you know, in the minds of the majority of the people living in the States. And a reason can be because of that relationship and the status of Puerto Rico as a U.S. territory. 
So regarding the second question, how do people feel? Well, there are very polarizing questions. You can have everything in this country from people that are very in favor of statehood, people that are very in favor of independence, or there are people that are also uh, just in favor of, of the status quo and remaining as a non-incorporated U.S. territory of the United States. And depending on who you ask, you're going to receive a different answer. And you can have even family members, <laughs> which happens a lot in, in the same family, like different family members having different opinions on the subject. But I think that's something that was highlighted after the hurricane was that, you know what? It's unfortunate that we can't depend on the government during these type of emergencies because, like residents were saying, we didn't see them come here. So we have to do this by ourselves. So there's also this mentality of like self-management. So regardless of the political status, even when it hurts us, people are just going to fight for their teams and organize themselves and move everything. We have this year, not, not in the Kenya, but in other areas of Puerto Rico, that for months they didn't see nobody from the either local or, or federal government visit them. They were without power, without water, without access to roads, and they just had to do everything by themselves. And it shouldn't be like that because that's why we have agencies for, and that's why there's millions and millions of dollars that, you know, people paying taxes for. But that's been basically the experience of Puerto Ricans is that they're not paying attention or they're not paying enough attention to us. So we'll have to do this by ourselves or find ways in which we can provide immediate relief and design long-term recovery efforts. That's at least my perception of this issue. It's so horrifying to hear this lack of care and respect and integrity by agencies, especially when people are suffering, when people have just lost everything and they just need the bare necessities to continue on and they're even denied that. Yeah, and I think that something that also we think about it on a political voting level, but it's also the difference in the cultural differences in Puerto Rico and the context of Puerto Rico. We're very different from the rest of the states. Even our language is our main language is Spanish. So it not only affects us in terms of representation, but also in the aid. And I have to recognize, I've been working with FEMA staff, at least in the Kanye communities, they've been very accessible, available. And I think that they also want to help, but don't know, maybe at the beginning, just we're trying to assess how they can work it out. In our communities, at least they, they've been managing to the leadership and coordinating, but it was not easy. First, we had to reach out to them, etc. But some issues that we've identified that has to do also with that situation of Puerto Rico being such a complex, different place and the states and the states not having that in mind, it's anything from applying process, application process for, for federal assistance, the language used, if it's not English, then it's a very technical Spanish, so that there are language barriers. In our communities, for example, the first groups that came up from FEMA or the foreign engineers mostly were from the U.S., so they didn't speak the language. We've had cases of families that received inspectors that were only English speakers, and obviously that family didn't get the help that they needed because they were unable to communicate with the person inspecting the property for who has the determination whether that family will receive or not assistance. But in addition to that, it's everything else. You know, land titling has been an issue for us because Puerto Rico has a very different way of, of doing transactions for buying and selling houses, especially in low-income communities. 
So it's a big problem. We have a civil code in addition to common laws. Our laws and regulations are very different from the states, are very similar to the Luciana situation. So when the agencies come here and they're asking families for land titles in order to give them aid, well, that it's a concern because a lot of people don't have land titles or they do like verbal agreements or are just they have a house that has been passed on to them by generations. And that bars a lot of families, especially families living in low-income areas, from accessing federal assistance because they it lacks a recognition of the way in which Puerto Ricans do transactions like buying and selling house and, and the, the way property rights work in Puerto Rico and how it differs from the states. So there's other things that need to be taken into consideration and there's other things that just evidence how, you know, the situation between U.S. and Puerto Rico affects the, the way in which federal aid uh, is being given to the communities. But in addition to that, there are also other concerns and not only federal level, but also a local level and more at a local level. And it's a concern that has to do with how do we invest all of these millions and millions of funds that the U.S. Congress has allocated for disaster recovery in the island? And what does concern us? Basically, we are concerned how the policies that are being drafted right now surrounding the use of these recovery funds can result, maybe as an unintended consequence of these policies, can result in the displacement of low-income communities. And I explain why. Basically, Puerto Rico has to work in different plans, which establish the way in which the government is going to be investing all of the funds that they receive from the federal government in disaster recovery projects. And as part of these plans, there are some plans about the use of funds that has been allocated to the Department of Housing. And these are funds that are part of the Community Block Development Grant for Disaster Recovery, or we call it CDBGDR. So these funds, they have also a plan that's called an action plan. And some of the things that are included in the action plan is how funds assigned through this CDBGDR program can't be used in high flood risk areas. So this for us is very damaging for communities because a lot of communities in Puerto Rico are located precisely in flood risk areas. So if you are not giving them access to these funds, you're basically telling them, well, you have to move because you have no money to rebuild your house or do any project that's needed to reduce your vulnerability. And our position is that a lot of these communities in flood plain or flood risk areas uh, have flood risk not only because, you know, climate change, but also because they're not in a, in a position to be able to mitigate and adapt to these events because they lack proper infrastructure, they are close to a water body that's blocked or any other type of issues. And it's our position that these funds can be used to invest strategically in the community through a community participation process in order to these communities located in, in flood risk areas or floodplain be able to reconstruct and do all of the projects needed to put them in a better position to mitigate and adapt a future a climate events. For example, give money to them to elevate the houses a few feet above the floodplain, invest in infrastructure projects that are also needed to alleviate the flood problems in communities, you name it. So it's important for us that all of the recovery funds are invested in an strategic way, but taking into consideration the historic permanence of communities and the community cohesion.
and involving the communities in this process of designing how the funds are going to be used, determining which projects are going to be projects for long-term recovery projects, and also let them lead the way for their own recovery. Yeah, so many times when I... Hope I explained well. Yeah. yeah, no, you did. And it's it's complex. And I think about so many other conversations I've had with community organizers and leaders. And so much of the time, what is being said, honestly, all of the time, what is being said is let the communities lead themselves. Communities need sovereignty. It doesn't make sense for some foreign aid agency or some outside funder or basically anybody who's outside the community to come in and tell the community what money needs to be spent on. The community on the ground knows the issues the best. They're living them. They're, it's lived experience for these communities. They need to have control and autonomy on how they recover from these disasters and how they're able to use the money. And I, I'm with you. I mean, I think it's, it's just a rot system. Yeah, I mean, you de- you definitely explained it, and it's it's really challenging to to understand and to get that across. And so I I'm definitely thinking about you know this global foreign aid complex, and you know just so many institutions have origins tied to political and military agendas, and so it's pointing to imperialistic powers wanting access to land and people that are easily exploitable. You know, for example, a U.S. shipment of rice following the 2010 earthquake in Haiti arrived timely as the country's harvest season was beginning. And so this flood of cheap rice totally shattered the local food economy. And one could argue that this was actually a strategic ploy to pull Haiti into a greater reliance on corporate food. So I'm curious what your opinion is on global aid initiatives in this way, you know, I know you've been talking about what it what this aid could actually be how it could be helpful but yeah I guess I'm just wondering do you think it's possible for foreign aid to ever be carried out with integrity in the context of global capitalism Well at least in our community we've had the fortune that every aid that has been either from the local or federal government or from private nonprofit or institutional universities etc They've been very respectful of the social dynamics in our communities, but it's also because we've made them, right, be respectful of that. And they've done it in a way in which they respect that everything that we do here is first and foremost led by the communities and involving the communities in the decision-making processes. So after the hurricane, we received over 100 allies and collaborators that provided uh, direct relief, uh, even cash to families, food, goods, you name it, volunteers. And I think that the good thing is that since all of them have reached out to us first and then we've been the ones engaging them in this community participation process so that they learn how to do things here, it's been a very positive experience. And I, I think that it's because you also sit them down at the table with the leaders and that you have the leaders explain to them that, hey, you may have this idea on what the coverage should look like, but this is how it, it's going to work here because we live here. We know, uh, you know what are the needs and how we can mitigate that. Uh, so you just can come to the table with us, but not having this savior complex like like some people call it. So at least in our communities, we've had that positive experience with allies and collaborators that they respect how important for us it is to have the communities engaged and participating in all of these decision-making processes and long-term recovery efforts. In other communities, it's definitely an issue. You know, if you're not organized, it's going to be very easy now for 
anybody to displace you. I mean, if you don't have access to funds, if you are a family living in a floodplain area, for example, a low-income family, not in the canyon, other communities, and FEMA denied your application because you don't have a land title, for example, you have no money to rebuild your house, and your house is damaged, what you're going to do, you're going to move. And then if that land is located close to an valuable resource, you can have people coming from outside buying the land at a really low cost and then gentrifying the area. So gentrification and displacement are, are very, has been very present in our communities, but it's now getting even more prevalent after the hurricane because there's so many families that don't have the means to fix their houses and that are going to have to abandon their communities and leave all that valuable land accessible for all these other developers. That's why the land trust here in the, in the canyon has been so essential because through the land trust, we're preventing that from, from happening here. But this is the only community land trust in Puerto Rico. So we have other tens and hundreds of other communities that are going to be facing these issues. And, and, you know, it's very important to now more than ever organize all these communities and engage them in all of these conversations that are happening regarding funds, recovery, etc., so that they are able to, you know, withhold any displacement or gentrification risk that they may face. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the property ownership and the legality surrounding in Puerto Rico, you know, it stems from the Spanish colonial rule and custom. There are inheritance customs where ownership is informally agreed upon. And then many homes are built without permits on private farmlands or government land. And the Puerto Rican government only requires a deed if one has a mortgage or a condo. So these concepts clash with FEMA requirements. And we should note that many say that FEMA has applied these requirements more strictly after Maria. You know, regardless, over 300,000 FEMA applicants have been denied. So I'm wondering what are the intricacies between this disaster release FEMA and the reality of property ownership in Puerto Rico? And even further, if we are to think about disaster relief in the context of Puerto Rico's economic crisis or as a form of neocolonialism, you know, how is it working within communities who are in various phases of rebuilding and self-determined renewal? It's the responsibility of the agencies to recognize the property rights system in Puerto Rico and to change policies to adjust them for Puerto Ricans, recognizing this distinction between the federal uh, regulations and laws and the local laws and regulations regarding property rights. And I think that they realized this after having all of these issues months after the hurricane. Unfortunately, that means that uh, thousands and thousands of families probably got denied because they didn't comply with the federal housing requirements, you know, ownership, property ownership requirements. So we've had the help of different organizations like Hurricane Ayuda Legal Huracán Maria, composed of, of legal lawyers or attorneys or law students. And they already knew that this was going to happen in Puerto Rico because they learned from Luciana that, that has similar programs because they also have a, the, a civil code in their jurisdiction. And, for example, in our communities, we had affidavits, uh, you know, and we helped the families sign these affidavits in which they basically states that they are legal occupants of the structure that they live in so that they have access to federal funding. But this is a, a wider issue, and this definitely it affects all of Puerto Rico. So it's very important for the agencies to recognize this and change their policies to adapt it to the realities of Puerto Ricans. In terms of communities, there's 
not much you can do when you, you know, you've been living in this house for 30, 40 years and, you know, your mother just died and gave it to you. So you don't, it's not alive to be able to do any type of, uh, there's no will, there's no, no way for you to do any type of contract. So it's very limited what residents can do. And, and they're also dealing already with the day-to-day challenges, especially if you're living in a house that suffered damages as a result of Hurricane Maria. But uh, community organizations can be key on sitting in the, at the table with FEMA, with HUD, with all of these agencies in charge of this funding and, you know, raise these issues and make them take these issues into consideration as part of their longer-term recovery efforts. But it's definitely a huge issue that concerns us. And I think that it, there's a need to sit down with these agencies, which we have already done and we've already provided to them, you know, how this is a concern, why this is a concern, and what can be done. Uh, so what can the agency do to alleviate this issue so that families uh, get access to the funding? But it's very important that, you know, all of the community organizations are able to be able to sit down and, and also raise the same issues. But it's definitely something that affects us and the reason why thousands of families right now are living in houses that have no roof, that maybe have no windows, that are completely damaged because they have no access to the funds that are allocated for that same purposes. Estrella, I'm so grateful that you are so invested in this work and have so much integrity and ethics and are fighting for communities that not only, like I was saying earlier, have been hit by these natural disasters, but with all the complications of foreign aid and neocolonialism, it's really a topic that is not addressed enough in the United States. It's not, this is something that get swept under the rug. And as, as my last question for you in this conversation, I'm thinking about what are some action steps that allies can do to support the people of Puerto Rico and the communities that you work with? You know, we're really trying to focus on tangible action steps that we can get involved in, because I know that when we're dealing with so much globally and the overwhelm is real, I really feel like an antidote to that overwhelm is creativity and getting involved so that we can actually know that we are doing something more than just sharing something on social media. Although I think that there is value in that, I'm really interested in how do we go beyond that? How do we go beyond headline culture? And so it's not just something where we see something happening in Puerto Rico through our phones on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, but then we forget about it the next day or the next day because another disaster has hit us. I really want to hear from you. What are these action steps that us as allies can take that aren't in Puerto Rico, or maybe some of us are, to support the people on the ground and the frontline communities? 
sure. I, I appreciate you giving us this opportunity to just talk about control action items. In regards to the to our communities in the Caño, we still have the the Carbs to Roofs initiative. So if you're interested in supporting this initiative through donations or, or any other type of support that they may think of, they can contact us at 787-729-1594. Uh, that's our office number. And that way you can either support that Tarps to Roofs initiative or learn about other programs that we're conducting right now that may need some additional resources. For the rest of the island, I think that it's very important for people that don't know about the Puerto Rico that, that want to help to reach out to community-based organizations on the ground. And you you can very easily look for look them up on the internet or even call us at Enlace and I can provide like a list of different organizations that we, I come up in my mind. But it's important that the first step is to contact the communities directly through these organizations just to know what their needs are. Because sometimes people want to help. The idea to, of helping is, okay, I'll just buy hundreds of bottles of water and hundreds of mosquito repellent, which may be very helpful, they are, but maybe that's not what the community needs. So each community has different needs. There are many, many organizations like Taller Salud y Loiza, Casa Pueblo en Adjuntas, Estuario de la Vida de San Juan. So, so there's so many organizations doing on-the-ground work in Puerto Rico that it's just a matter of contacting them first, know what their needs are, and work together with them to see how you can support them based on their needs and engaging the, the residents of the communities. Mm. Well, thank you, Estrella. We will definitely take that into our hearts and our minds and our hands and our tangible action steps and share this with the community and yeah, I'm so grateful that you are who you are and you're holding this down for all of us because I think it's also really important to know that at some point we will probably all be facing some type of disaster where we live, whether we're in Puerto Rico, whether we're in California, look at what's happening with the fires right now. Nobody is immune to this, but we need to support the communities who are suffering from this right now because one, I think it helps us know that we're there for each other and we can, on a grassroots level, support one another. I think it also teaches us preparedness no matter where we are in the world. And I know we have listeners all over the world that are listening to the lessons you've been learning. And these are important for all of us. And it's important for us to, to support the people that are suffering on the front lines from these issues and know that that nobody is immune and, and we all really need to come together and learn from one another and be there for one another. And so I, I appreciate you and thank you so much for this conversation today. No, I, I appreciate the, the space. And as you were saying, I, you know, first we are so many communities in facing different disasters or issues, but at the heart of it, we are communities that are facing similar challenges. So by coming together, we, 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 we build up a, a stronger core and you know we've raised much more our voices so if anybody's interested in learning more about the place that we are carrying out here or the situation in Puerto Rico feel free to contact me at that telephone number and I once again I appreciate giving us this space and you know your kind words as well as the, all the information that you already uh, provided in complement of, uh, of the information that I provided so thank you so much Ayana. Thank you Estrella.
Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. I'm Carter Lou McElroy, and the music you heard today was from Los Hombres Calientes. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana Young, as well as the rest of our podcast production team, Aidan McRae, Andrew Storrs, Erica Ekram, Aaron Wise, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, and Melanie Younger. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please rate us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with our projects and offerings, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting forthewild.world slash subscribe.